How would you like to have your relationship with God written in detail into the pages of Scripture? I'm sure a highlight like a baptism that we witnessed this morning would be one of those events that you'd want captured. You'd want everybody to sense what you were sensing, the presence of God, the sense of obedience to Jesus Christ. What a privilege to witness others declaring their faith in Jesus Christ. But not all the Christian life is lived on the mountaintop, is it? There are times in the valleys, there are times in shadows and storms that we turn away from God. Today we're continuing on in this fall series that Pastor Rick has been leading us in entitled Unlimited, God's Rights Over Ours. We've learned over the past number of weeks about Jonah, the prophet who was running from God. I wonder if we've ever been guilty of doing that. Or how about Hannah, the woman of God, who in the midst of very difficult life circumstance, poured out her heart, prayed to God. Or how about young Samuel, who was hearing from God at such an early age. What a spectrum of those who were engaged in a relationship with God. Men can hear from God. Praise God for that. Women can hear from God. Young adults, teens, kids can hear from God. The question is, what have we been hearing? What have you been hearing from God? What have I been hearing from God during this past week? Do you recall the truth that Pastor Rick shared with us a couple of weeks ago as we looked at the life of Samuel? He cited the passage which says, the Lord continued to appear at Shiloh, and there he revealed himself to Samuel through his word. God did that to Samuel. He does that to us, doesn't he? Through his word, which has been preserved translated into a language we understand. He reveals himself. He shows us who he is. He shows us who we are. And he shows us his amazing desire for us to have a relationship with him. Would you take your Bibles, please, and turn to Genesis chapter 11. Today, I want to guide us through the study of Abraham, who is following God's call. Abraham, Abram, as he shows up in the text, is a man of God who becomes a very prominent figure. 4,000 years ago he lived, close to 2,000 years before Christ. And it's remarkable, during the ministry of Jesus, Jesus himself said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. Abraham's a man of faith, a man of action, a man of trust, a man of obedience, a man who also was a sinner. And we'll see that as we unpack this together. Genesis, of course, is the book of beginnings. That's the, the first book in our collection of 66 books. And I have for you on the screen a simple outline that really divides the book at chapter 11. Genesis 1 to 11 really focuses on four events. Creation, the fall, flood, and nations. God creates the earth, creates things perfectly. He speaks things into existence. The Latin expression, ex nihilo, God speaks out of nothing. He creates all that we enjoy out of nothing. And then very soon into the pages of Genesis, we read of the disobedience of man. One choice, one act of disobedience that brought the entire human race uh, into sin. And then God judges the earth through the flood and preserves Noah, the man who believed God, the man who trusted God and built himself an ark despite the hostility despite the ridicule of his neighbors over 120 years, and God saved him. 
And then, of course, the nations. That's where we'll launch the context for our study today. Genesis chapter 11, as the people begin to scatter all over the earth, and they build a tower, which we'll come to in a few moments. Then the balance of the book is taken up with four major characters. Genesis 12 through 50 deals with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. And God zeroes his attention in on this one family line. He takes Abram, a man who is living in a, an idol-worshiping family, calls him by name, invites him to come out from his family, from his country, from his own people, and God promises to build a great nation through Abraham and does exactly that. In Genesis chapter 11, we have the account of the story of Babel. Look with me, please, at verse 1. Now, the whole world, the whole world had one language and a common speech. At this point in human history, there are no translators needed. There is only one language, and everybody shares it. And as a result of this one language and this one purpose, the people gather together and in verse 3 decide that they're going to build something. They're going to build a tower, and the purpose, the motive for their building project is revealed to us in verse 4. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, notice this, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. Most of the people who have lived on planet earth, left to their natural ways, natural resources, are seeking to build a name for themselves. Would you agree with that? In today's multimedia, social media world, we see that more and more. The word selfie has now been entered into the dictionary. There's something about taking a picture of yourself, about capturing what you've done, who you are, who you hang out with, all the wonderful occasions that no one else cares about. We make a name for ourselves, and that's, that, that traces back. This is an old problem, isn't it? This is a root issue. One language, one speech, one sin issue. And the sin issue was the issue of pride. The issue was they wanted to build a name for themselves. What a contrast we're going to see in Genesis chapter 12, where God himself will make a name for Abram, where God himself will extend the influence of this one man to the ends of the earth. Here at this point, people are setting themselves up. Man is setting themselves up in defiance of God, really in opposition to God, and seeking to establish and allow his rights, man's rights, to triumph over God's. People's rights, the rights of people. We're doing that today. God's ways, our ways. I know the Bible says this, but, and you hear the explanation why people continue in the behavior they have chosen. Well, what does James 4 verse 6 add to this conversation? What does the New Testament teach us about God's response to pride? God resists or God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is resistant all the way through the pages of Scripture. God resists individuals, nations, people, groups, families who manifest this core issue of pride. But on the other hand, in contrast, he gives grace to the humble. He deals with a woman like, what, like Hannah, the mother of Samuel, 
This broken woman who shows up at the place of worship, who is ridiculed, as it were, by the priest of the day who thinks she's under the influence of alcohol, and God shows this woman incredible grace. And she pours her heart out to God similarly to the way Mary, the mother of Jesus, poured her heart out to God in Luke chapter 1. We break into this account in verse 27. As you look through chapter 11, you see this scattering and God confuses the languages as he comes down in judgment. The Tower of Babel is given that name because the Hebrew word for confusion is sort of a, it's sort of a play on words. It's the Tower of Confusion. It's the Tower of Confusion. We break into this at verse 27 where the author tells us this is the account of Terah. He's beginning a new section in the book of Genesis, and running through the book of Genesis, you will find various uh, breaks in the text, various indications of the new theme, the new focus, the new characters who gain prominence. This is the account of of Adam. This is the account of Noah. This is the account of Abram. This is the account, and you work your way through the entire book in that order. This is the story of Terah and his sons, uh, his descendants, and particularly Abram in a major way, and then his other two sons, Nahor and Haran, in a minor way. Now, Terah, the father of of Abram, his name is linked to the moon god, to the moon god. Ur and Haran, the city of Haran, although the sun was also called Haran, so you could be confused between the city and the sun, but you remember one, you remember both. But these were places where the moon was worshipped, and idolatry was embedded into this culture. Abraham's, or Abram as he's called here, his father's house were idol worshipers. And God was calling him. God speaks to Abram while he's still back in Ur of the Chaldees in what we would say is modern-day Iraq, and speaks to him and calls him, invites him into a relationship, challenges him to leave his family, leave his ancestors, leave his people group, and become part of the new kingdom that God is building. Next Sunday, I'll have the joy of of witnessing a number of men and women who are leaving idolatry behind. While you're worshiping here in Oshawa, I'll be in a little community called Malda, which is northeast of Calcutta. And there, next Sunday, a planned service for 50 baptisms. I think it'll be a good chunk of the day by the time we're done, hearing testimonies and just witnessing what God is doing in calling people to himself, calling people into a relationship with Jesus Christ in the midst of a very hostile environment. Covet your prayers uh, for the team as we go and serve there. But these people there, and as, as, as uh, Abram was saying as well, he's saying, Lord, I, I'm willing. I hear your voice. I hear your call, and I'm, I'm prepared to go where you go. I'm prepared to follow you regardless of the cost. Follow with me in the text. Terah, verse 27, became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, these three sons, and were, were sort of clued into a connection between Noah, who had three sons, and Adam, who had three sons. And Haran became the father of Lot. While his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. 
Notice these words. Now Sarai was barren. She had no children. It's important when you consider the promise that God's about to make to him. Verse 31, Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. Terah lived 205 years and died in Haran. So what happens? Back in Ur of the Chaldees, God reveals himself to Abram and convinces him, persuades him to leave his community. His father and some of his extended family join him and they come to the next community, the next major city, some distance away, the city of Haran. But Terah, who is the, the great patriarch, as it were, of the family, decides and leads the family to settle there. That's an important observation. That's an important notation. You know, we read through it so quickly, but the fact that they had sort of parked themselves is an indication that something's happening. There's a temptation to compromise. God calls you to go here, and you, decide, you think, well, I, I don't really want to go that far. Can I go halfway? Well, you know that God's not into halfway commitment, is he? Terah leads the family to, to settle there. Derek Kidner, the author of a commentary on Genesis, writes, on his own, man will get no further than confusion, power of Babel, and compromise. Leave people to themselves, leave people to their own resources, their own ideas, and we will be tempted. We are naturally bent towards confusion and compromise. I'm sure in our own circle of influence, in families, with coworkers, with people in our own circle that we interact with weekly, we've met people who are confused, who don't know their purpose, who've lost their meaning. One of the great challenges for dealing with millennials is the sense of despair. Look at the sense of despair that is gripping the hearts of many within our First Nations communities. These are current issues. These, are, these have great relevance. The gospel needs to be proclaimed. The gospel of Christ is the message of hope to those who battle despair. Now we come to chapter 12 where God now is revealing himself. In fact, he goes back in time. Notice the tense that is used in verse 1. The Lord had said, right? So we're tracing back to a previous revelation, a previous encounter that the Lord God Almighty had had with Abram, and this is the message. The Lord had said to him, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. The, the, the key question for us to ask today is, is how essential is it to follow God's leading? When God has communicated through his word, put something on your heart, convinced you of a direction in terms of what you're to do with your life or how you're to conduct yourself, how essential is it that you respond to that leading? Can you just brush it off as a passing, you know, passing emotional response or does God hold us accountable for the truth he's unpacked and, and, and revealed to us? That's a key question. What right does God have over my comfort zone? 
Now, if we were to put a, a chart, we're not going to do it, but if we were to put a, a chart on the screen of the, the size of people's comfort zones on the screen, there'd be quite a variation, wouldn't there? So some of us live in a pretty small comfort zone. You know, we move and we're outside of our own comfort zone, right? For others, we've, we've, we've been stretched. We've been on a journey with God and with, with life, and God has walked us through, and our comfort zone is just a little larger, and God has taught us we can still trust him. Even, in the, even when the darkness closes in, we can still say, blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, that's a commitment of faith. So where are you at? How willing are you, how willing am I this morning to allow God to take me outside of my comfort zone? How comfortable do you want your life to be? How are you designing your future? With God or leaning on your own understanding? Well, there are two commands that are, that are pressed on Abram in this communication. In verses 2 and 3, God, who has revealed himself to Abram, challenges him to do two things. Well, beginning in verse 1 as well, but verse 2 and 3 follow along. Here's the direct quote. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Two commands, two commands specifically addressed to this man, and the impact of his obedience ripples into his family. If Abram obeys and leads his wife and family, the whole family unit will be able to declare like Joshua, as for me and for my house, we will serve the Lord. Now, here's the principle that I want us to grasp this morning. Three things we're going to work through. Principle number one, the commands of God to us rest on the promises of God for us. The commands of God to us, when God commands us, when God instructs us to do something, whenever you find a command in Scripture, you will find that that command, that demand that God puts on your life rests on his promises. God establishes for us in our relationship with him who he is, what he's done for us, what he's provided for us, and then on the basis of that firm foundation, he then commands us to act. And so here is Abram being told by God, first of all, go. Leave your country. Leave your people group. Leave your household. How many of you are immigrants to Canada? I mean, in one sense, we all are, aren't we? Right? What's it like to say goodbye to your country, to your homeland? You've been on that journey. You know the challenge to bid farewell, and it gets pretty emotional whether you're boarding a plane or boarding a ship or whatever means of transportation you came here years ago or more recently. Abram was called to leave. Abram was called to go out. God was sending him out. He didn't know where he was going. But he knew he was persuaded that God had called him. And the adventure, I'm sure, seemed exciting and challenging until he ran into some difficulty. He takes this 1,000-kilometer journey from Ur to Haran and ultimately down to Canaan, modern-day Israel. And then while he's there, he bumps into a famine. Everything's going great. It's been a great thing to move. It's been wonderful to relocate until the problems come. And I'm sure some of you have had that experience. 
All of a sudden, the grass that you thought was greener on the other side of the fence is, looks more like AstroTurf, right? It's, it's just something that's not quite as appealing. Things aren't going quite as well. They all lived happily ever after is sort of, you know, a book, you know, a book ending in a nursery rhyme, but it's not our life experience. So the command by God, first of all, is, is go. And he supports it with three promises. Notice this. Notice the promises. Notice it's the Lord God, the maker of heaven and earth, has taken, has focused his love and affection on this one person. And, and what a contrast to chapter 11. Chapter 11, all the people who are there together are concerned about separating and dividing, and they have to mobilize all their effort and decide to make a name for themselves. Here God says to this one man, if you'll trust me, if you'll obey me, I will make a name for you. What a contrast. So here's the promise. Number one, I'll make you into a great nation. Now remember, they're childless. I'll bless you. Well, how are you going to measure that? Lord, what will that look like? What does the blessing of the Lord look like 2,000 years before Christ? What does the blessing of God look like in 2016? I'll make your name great. How do you know when that's happened? Survey the residents of Canaan when Abram is, receives this promise, and I'm sure not one person or just a handful of people will know who he is. And now go around the world in 2016 and discover people of Islamic faith and Jewish faith and the Christian faith who trace, who trace the history of their faith, rightly or wrongly, to Abram. The second command is to be a blessing. Be a blessing. Go and be a blessing. And again, God substantiates, God supports his command with three promises. Number one, I will bless those who bless you. I will favor those, Abram, who favor you. Secondly, I will curse him who curses you. Notice the singular is used as opposed to the plural. God it appears, seems to, to, to be guiding Abram that more people will bless him than curse him. People will get it. People will figure out it's better to get on Abram's side. It's better to line up with him and with his descendants than it is to oppose him because the Lord God has substantial, uh, substantiated his promise, his will to this individual. Promise number three, in you all the nations will be blessed. Uh, chapter 10 and 11, the nations are scattered. Chapter 10 and 11, the nations are cursed. Chapter 12, God promises in mercy, not in judgment, but in mercy to bless the nations of the world. Every time we hold a global ministries conference, every time a missionary is sent out from this congregation to the ends of the earth, we are lining up with this promise. And a promise God later gave to Abraham in you, and in your seed, namely Christ, will all the families of the earth be blessed. It's remarkable. God makes promises. God keeps promises. You and I can rest in those promises. The question is this morning, do we trust God? Am I prepared to venture out of my comfort zone into an unknown area simply on the basis of who God is? 
No guarantee, no promise except his promise. That's what Abram had, and he stepped out in faith. He's called to obey. He has clear instructions from God. Kidner writes, Abram must exchange the known for the unknown. It's easy to stay in Haran. It would have been easy to stay in Ur. Now he's going to a land he doesn't know. On the way and during his journeys, he'll, he'll live in a tent. Uh, Hebrews 11 uses that as an illustration. Those who have their minds set on earthly things live in cities. Those who have their minds live, uh, set on heavenly things live in tents. It's the idea that in that country, you, 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 you de detach, as it were, from the things of this world. Now, obviously, we're not going to go too far into the winter in a tent, unless it's a really good tent, right? But the reality, the question for us to ask is, how attached are you and I to the things of this world? No one can serve two masters, Jesus said, did he not? You can't love God and mammon or money at the same time. You either love one and hate the other, or you despise one and you cling to the other. You cannot serve God and money. That was true for Abram, even though God blessed him. And he did become very, very successful. So he must find his reward. Notice this. Abram must exchange the known for the unknown. He must find his reward in what he could not live to see. God promises this great nation. This won't happen for years. It will happen beyond his lifetime. Will he still trust God? In what was intangible? How do you know when your name's been made great? I mean, it's easy for us to look back and see thousands and millions of people who hold Abram in high regard, who know his name, who, who show great reverence to his name despite the differences in their faith. And in what God would impart, how do you measure blessing? The principle for us to establish this morning and to fix our minds on is this, echoed in the words of St. Augustine, what God commands, he also enables. If God has commanded you, if God has commanded me to do something, he will provide the resources to do it. He is Jehovah Jireh, the Lord our provider. If he gives you direction, he'll give you the enablement to keep those directions. If he commands you to do something, he'll give you the grace to do it. But we enter into the picture when we decide how much we believe or how much we are willing to submit to his commands. How willing am I to take God at his word? What, what has God been commanding you? What has God been commanding me? What promises has he assured us with from his word? He, he, he speaks to us, and then he awaits a response. He calls us, like Samuel, like Hannah, like Jonah, like Abram, to respond to his word. The issue is not ignorance for us. The, the issue is compliance. Hardly any of us can say, well, I, I, I didn't know what God wanted me to do. Would you agree with that? We, we know what he wants us to do. We know where he wants us to go. We know what he wants us to be. What's the problem? We don't want to do it. He says this way, and we're more like Jonah. We line up with Jonah. We're headed the opposite direction to run away from his command. Principle number one, the commands of God to us rest on the promises of God to us. Genesis 12, 1 to 3. The second principle 
in verses 4 through 9, the directions of God, the directions of God for us are further confirmed in the path of our obedience to him. If and when you finally decide to obey God, you will discover he will confirm that obedience. Amen? Amen. God is faithful. God is faithful. He calls Abram and says, leave your country, leave your people, leave your household, go to a land I'll show you. Abram does that, gets to the land, and what happens? Verse 4 of Genesis chapter 12. So Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. He was 75 years old when he set out. He took his wife, his nephew, all the possessions they'd accumulated and the people they'd acquired in Haran, and they set out. They did exactly what God called them to do. Abram traveled throughout the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Now he's here. Now he's arrived. He's at least in the community where God wants him to dwell. And verse 7, surprise, surprise, the Lord appeared to Abram. It's been some time. And the journey between when he first appeared and now has been a journey of faith just like it is for us. There there may be long periods of time where you are simply walking forward by faith, where you take the next step, uncertain of even your own position, but fully certain of who God is. What a blessing to know God. What a privilege to know that we can trust in the Lord with all our heart. We don't need to lean on our own understanding. We can acknowledge him in all our ways. He will make our path straight. He will direct us. Abram discovers that. And as the Lord appears to Abram in verse 7 and says, to your offspring I will give this land, what's his response? How do you respond to a God who has revealed himself to you? You worship him. You honor him. You order your life in such a way that even your neighbors know there's a difference. You're trusting this guy. And so Abram gathers some stones and builds an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Well, he's a bit of a nomad, right? He's got flocks and herds. He's got to move them around to get grass and water so they can survive, so they move on to another community. Verse 8, from there he went on toward the hills east of Bethel, and pitched his tent, there it is again, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. What does he do? New location, new community, same God. The reality is for us that when we change locations, we don't change God's. When you have a change in your circumstances, you may still trust the God who called you. The God who spoke to you in the light is still with you in the darkness. Praise his name. And there, there he built an altar to the Lord and called on the name of the Lord. Here he is. His worship is in the present tense. His engagement with God who has revealed himself and directed his step is in the present tense. He wants to be up to date with God. He wants to be current in his worship of God. How about us? How about us? Friends, what distinguishes us from our neighbors? 
Would others see us gathering stones, as it were, and prioritizing the worship of God in a very pagan culture? I dare say these 50 men and women I'll see baptized next Sunday are going to stand out in a village community where they've declared their abandonment of idolatry, their abandonment of false gods in, in honor of Jesus Christ, everyone will know. Pray for the leader, of the, the pastoral leader that Pastor Rick and Pastor Jonathan and I have had a part in training. His mother was killed a week ago in a bicycle accident. She's a believer. All her family are believers. The huge funeral that was held in in her memory, in her honor, and in honor of Christ, had a huge impact in that community. There's a price to be paid for standing. There's a cost to persevere when the trials get greater, aren't there? Our obedience must be God-centered and will be God-centered. Oh, that this text ended in verse 9. Oh, that the writer had been able to close this chapter of Abram's life by saying, Abram, was shown the way by God. He came to this new uh, community, this new country under God's direction. He established himself there under God's direction, and he worshiped God the rest of his life. But we have for us, recorded in black and white, the, the sad chapter of a failure in faith. Follow with me in verse 10 and 20 as we look at this third principle. Here's the principle. The absence... The absence of God-given guidance should alert us to dangers which await us. Look at verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. You can expect, here's the principle, you can expect that if you're on a journey of faith with God, if God has led you and confirmed his guidance to you, your faith will be tested. It won't get easier. Maybe that disappoints you, maybe that surprises you, but the reality through the Scriptures is that the, the longer you journey in faith, the more challenging your faith is tested. Now, how does Abram respond to this famine? He set out. He continues towards the... He's going into a desert area. You know there's a lack of water. The famine is great. And he chooses to go down to live there for a while. He, he moves into Egypt because the famine was severe. Should he have gone? There's, there's no indication in this text. You can read in vain through all of these verses. There's no place where Abram consults God. Just as in certain chapters of your life and my life where we, where we blindly go ahead making life-altering decisions without talking to God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Isn't that the appeal of Jesus? Trust in the Lord with, with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Now, that text wasn't written. But God had revealed himself to Abram. God had guided Abram. And yet here, at this point, this man of faith, this man who's called the friend of God, wanders off the path of faith into his own thinking. Been there, done that. Been there, done that. Thinking we know better than God. Thinking our way, our counsel, is wiser than the time-tested pages of God's Word. 
he set out. And as he was about to enter Egypt, he said to his wife, Sarai, I know what a beautiful woman you are. Now, that's a great thing to say to your wife. Men, just, you know, you can mark that down. This is, if, you, if, if you've run out of compliments, like we sometimes often do, and we don't say them when we should, uh, this is not a Father's Day sermon, but, or, uh, or a marriage, marriage seminar, but that's not a bad thing to say. But then what does he do? I know what a beautiful woman you are, and when the Egyptians see you, they'll say, this is his wife, they'll, they'll kill me. <laughs> Poor me. Let you live. Say you're my sister. Would, would you tell just a little lie? We're sort of, we're half brother, half sister. Just let's fudge the truth a little bit. You know, it'll soon be over. Men, when we pressure our wives to compromise truth, we failed as husbands. When we've urged our kids to just twist it, just, you know, no, dad's not home when he's lying on the couch. How, how, how careful are we? How, how easily does, do half-truths creep into our conversation? So, she gives no response, at least the text says, and when she came to Egypt, the Egyptians saw that she was a very beautiful woman. Verse 15, when Pharaoh's officials saw her, they praised her. She was taken into the palace. He treated Abram well for her sake. He acquires all of these sheep. He's just, Pharaoh says, I'll just give you everything. She's such a beautiful woman. This is incredible. This is the great bride price you want? Sure, no problem. But the Lord... That changes everything, doesn't it? Things are going just great in your new pattern of sin, but the Lord. And the Lord, the all-knowing God, sees. And inflicted serious diseases on Pharaoh, and Pharaoh summons Abram and says, what, what have you done to me? He concludes that He's in a bad relationship. This has to be severed. This has to be broken. He says, Get, take your wife and go. And he gave orders about Abram to his men, and they sent her on his way. What's been happening? Abram has been entangled by sin. It, it's a little sin, isn't it? I mean, it's only a half-truth. It's not, it's not that big a deal, is it? Well, it is deception. It is a lie. And God knows it. And Abram knows it. And Sarai knows it. And Pharaoh knows it. And instead of going down to Egypt to bless the nations, Abram brings actually a curse into this community. Friends, even great saints have their sin struggles. What does Hebrews 12 say? Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let's lay aside every weight. It's the picture of a runner taking off all that extra, you know, clothing that's not needed. And, and, and then it says, and the sin which so easily entangles us. Let's set that aside. And let us run with patience the race marked out for us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. How, how suddenly do we transition from faith to fear? What happened? 
How could someone, how could the friend of God, how could a man who was so responsive, he'd heard from God, he'd worshiped God, how could he turn his back on God? It happens so easily. The devil, like a roaring lion, walks about seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith. The moment Abram stepped out of faith, he'd lost the battle. I ask you this morning, are you standing in faith? Are you prepared this morning to join as our worship team comes in just a moment to say, Lord, where you go, I'll go. I will follow. I choose to follow you regardless of the cost. I ask you this morning, where is God leading you? How is he directing your steps? Are you listening? Do you hear him? Is he moving you out of your comfort zone? Let's review together what is our commitment, what is our response. We can read what Abram did, but let's ask ourselves. The commands of God to us, not just to Abram, but to us, rest on the promises of God for us. So I'm asking myself, do I seek God's input? How much of, of, of the decision-making process of my life involves a seeking of God's input? Secondly, the direction of God for us is further confirmed in the path of our obedience to Him. Am I prepared to affirm my output? Am I prepared to build an altar? Am I prepared to, to stand up and declare that I am following Jesus Christ? That I'll go where he leads. I'm willing to step out of my comfort zone, Lord. I don't understand the next step, but I know you're leading me. Oh, to go into the future in the, with, a hand, with our hand in the hand of God. And then thirdly and lastly, the absence of God-given guidance should alert us to dangers which await us. How alert, how sensitive are we to the dangers which await us? Didn't Jesus teach us to pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the examples that you have preserved for us in your word. Thank you for your call upon our lives. Thank you that we may rest fully and firmly on the promises that you have provided for us. Thank you for the remarkable ways that you confirm in our hearts your presence, your help, as we seek to obey you. Thank you for the dangers that you alert us to, sometimes through the counsel of other believers, Sometimes through our own time in your word, thank you for the warnings you give that we would not lean on our own understanding, that we would acknowledge you in all our ways. Father, may this closing service 
here in October 2016 be a time of dedication. May it be a fresh time of surrender. May we say, Lord, where you go, I'll go. I will do what you want us, want me to do. We will do what you want us to do. Lord, break down the pride, break down the stubbornness of our own will, and draw us again to a place of surrender to Jesus, who's called the Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. The call to follow God comes not only to Abram, but comes to all of us. Perhaps you're here today and you're hearing that call for the very first time. I invite you today to hear the words of Jesus Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus Christ invites you to follow him and those of us who've declared ourselves to be followers, to hear the words of Jesus when he said to some of his early followers, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? May this be a time of consecration. Where is God leading you? What is his call upon your life? Leave this auditorium today confident that the God who has made promises keeps those promises. You may count on him. But if you choose to go your own way, Scripture reminds us, don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the invitation to follow you. Thank you for the call that Jesus Christ gave and extended through his ministry. Come, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Father, we pray that this day you will find us as a corporate body of believers following hard after Jesus Christ. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. May you find us diligently seeking you this day, O God. Enable us to find our way to the foot of the cross in repentance for our pride, for our stubbornness, for our refusal to do what you've called us to do. Work in us that which is pleasing in your sight. May the Spirit of God equip us by your incredible grace. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.